Super glad you're joining us on this, what is it now, Wednesday morning, and we are coming up towards the tail end of the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 27, um, but before we dive in, let me just um, kind of forecast where we're going with these uh, weekday pastoral devotionals we've been doing this past season. Um, we are going to finish Matthew um, here tomorrow, actually. Then we're going to take a little brief uh, summer hiatus. Not, not. We're already in the summer, of course, but we're going to circle back around to doing these again, probably towards the end of July, beginning of August, as we anticipate the fall kicking off, school kicking off, things getting sort of more back to normal. So we're going to take a little six-week break here. Um, a lot of you guys are traveling. We're going to be out of town some, so it seems like a good time to take the, the summer break, the summer hiatus. But I believe we are going to definitely continue these once we um, jump back into the fall around the beginning of August. And obviously, we'll be, we'll be communicating about that, what we're going to be looking at, studying, all those good things. So we will continue these on Lord willing. But this morning, Matthew 27, let's commit our time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we cannot come independently, arbitrarily, autonomously to your text and um, make of it what we want. Lord, we're in a position where you are our king and our sovereign, and we are standing under you through your word, and thus we're asking you to speak to us. We're asking you to give us direction. We're asking you to go before us today. And so, Father, give us wisdom, grace as we unpack this um, this chapter. It's a heavy chapter, Lord, but as we're going to see, you are in charge of it from start to finish. In your name, amen. What we have essentially in Matthew 27 um, are all the events prior to and immediately after uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, particularly the trial, particularly the process by which the religious leaders have uh, worked maliciously behind the scenes to undermine Jesus and his testimony, to trump up false charges, and to have him crucified. Now, I make the case, and you've heard me say this before, I think I said this during our Good Friday service this past year, that I think it's not a matter of the Jewish leaders not believing that Jesus was who he says he was, or that he didn't really raise what he wasn't really raised from the dead. In fact, I think as you can see towards the end of Matthew 27, where they have the testimony of the guards that they set to guard uh, Jesus's tomb, so the disciples wouldn't steal the body, and then the angels appeared and rolled the stone away, and all those. I I, I think they they very well knew this was true. It's just that um, the claim on their lives was going to be too much. Um, Jesus was not the kind of Messiah, the kind of king they wanted him to be or they thought he should be in relationship to them. And again, you see their utter corruption here at the beginning of chapter 27 where Judas hangs himself. Look at verse 3. That's where we hear that Judas is sort of having buyer's remorse. Um, he regrets that he betrayed Jesus. He wants to return these 30 pieces of silver. And we ought not to think about this as repentance, okay? Um, remember, godly sorrow leads to, to repentance. Worldly sorrow leads to death. And it's here that Judas sort of de 
in utter despair at what has happened, returns these 30 pieces of silver and goes and kills himself. True repentance would have mean, um, you know, coming before God, coming before others. Um, we don't know what would have happened if Judas had done that. I mean, maybe he would have been saved. Um, obviously, if he had repented, he would have been saved and trusted in Christ. But this is a worldly sorrow. But what's bizarre is the way that the religious leaders engage with Judas when he brings back the silver. They tell him, look at verse 4, what is this to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they're saying, you know what, this money was a bribe, so it would be unrighteous, unholy for us to receive this money back into the temple. And we're just shaking our heads, realizing they have transgressed every Old Testament law about um, not bearing false witness, about having the presumption of a fair trial. They have actually conspired to murder Jesus, okay, on false charges, which they knew to be false. And yet they've committed this massive injustice, but they're concerned about blood money or lottery money or what have you coming back into the temple. And again, it's this idea of straining out gnats, Pharisees, of your drink, yet you have this camel, okay, in your in your pitcher of water. And again, it just it, it goes to the, the depths of their of their corruption that they would be concerned about that, but not about the most important thing, which is doing justice and mercy. So Matthew builds upon this and remember, one of Matthew's themes in his gospel, one of his chief themes, is to show that, in fact, Jesus is the true Messiah King. And here, in this passage, sort of ironically, you have all of these people testifying to the kingship of Jesus. Now, they're mocking Jesus. They think it's a farce. Um, just for example, um, Pilate, verse 11, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. Um, he, uh, Jesus, verse 27, is brought into the praetorium where he is mocked. They put a crown on his head and a reed in his hand like a scepter. And kneeling before him, they said, hell, king of the Jews, right? Going back down um, where... Jesus is publicly crucified, verse 37, they put a sign over his head, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, what? The king of the Jews. Verse 42, they're mocking him. He saved others, but he, cannot, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. All right, you see, see all these things happening where um, unwittingly they are proclaiming the true identity of Jesus. They now they're mocking. This is not the king that they would have that 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 they envisioned. This is not a true king in themselves. But they're more right than they know. Um, it's it's it, it's kind of like um, God in the Old Testament speaking through uh, the mouth of Balaam's donkey, right? And I think what Matthew is trying to show us here is that despite the underhanded wickedness of the religious leaders, the farce of a trial, Pilate washing his hands of Jesus's death, uh, the crowd demanding Barabbas, I mean, there's just injustice flowing everywhere. But yet, but yet, God stands behind it all 
orchestrating things so that his ultimate will is not thwarted. In fact, it is through the sinful actions of these people that his ultimate will is carried out. And despite the people's hard-hearted resistance to who Jesus really is, it's Matthew's way of telling us God is using even that to put forward the king of the Jews, his king, the Messiah king. It's a different kind of king, right, than even the disciples were expecting. This is a not a conquering king, at least in an earthly sense. It is a suffering king. It's a king that has to die for his subjects in order to bring his subjects into his kingdom. Um, Peter, obviously, who's a firsthand account of all this, remember we're studying through the book of Peter, has something interesting to say about this whole process. He, in Acts 2, he's preaching to Israel, the religious leaders, the people, some, some most likely the very people who called for Jesus to be delivered up to be crucified. And listen to what Peter says. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attests to you. Remember, he's preaching. This is after the resurrection. Peter's preaching to the people of Israel. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as yourself know. Now listen, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In other words, what they did was lawless, but yet from God's perspective, what they did was in accordance with his plan to accomplish his ultimate purposes. And um, this is not to introduce on a, on a, on a muggy uh, Wednesday morning all of the, the divine tensions between human responsibility and God's sovereignty, except that while God gives us, gives us capacity and will, his will okay, is always greater and more decisive than our will. So what does Paul say in Philippians 2? Uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Christian, for it is God who wills and acts um, in you to accomplish his good purposes. And that's such a huge comfort in it, uh, to us, isn't it, believers, when we look at the landscape of today's culture and look at all the, the injustice that's, that's flowing across the land right now, the injustice that's being protested, the injustice that's being enacted against the injustice, and to realize uh, God is standing behind it, meaning he is working it all to his ultimate good, just as he was with the death of his, of his son. Now, just to make sure that we know that this isn't all hypothetical, I want you to look at, um, real quick as we, as we bring this time to a close, um, the man whom is sort of, quote-unquote, innocently, randomly um, sort of caught up in this story. When Jesus is carrying his cross, look at verse 32. It says, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. Now, that's, that's not atypical. I mean, by this point in time of the trial and of his public torture, Jesus couldn't carry his own cross so they compelled a passerby, Cyrene, Simon of Cyrene. And poor Simon, he's just there for the Passover watching all this and happenstance, uh, this procession of crucify, this crucifixion was happening right before his eyes. Now, what's interesting about that, okay, is that if you flip over to Mark 
chapter 15, verse 21, and Mark is giving us his perspective on this story. And he mentions the same thing, verse 21, chapter 15 of Mark, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. Okay, so there we go, affirming what Matthew said. But then he goes on to further identify um, Simon when he says that he is the father of Alexander and Rufus. And we have to say, what, what, what is that about? Why is, why is Mark bringing that up? Okay, I mean, Alexander and Rufus, we don't even, we, we have, this is the first time we've been introduced to these characters. Why would he introduce them here? It's most likely, remember, Mark was Peter's compatriot. Mark was Peter's recorder, recorded uh, Peter's sermons, his recollections of this time. And most likely he references Alexander and Rufus. Remember, this is being written 20, 30 years after the fact. And he's mentioning them because the people in the early church would have known who they were. Meaning, Alexander and Rufus, by this point, were most likely alive. They were involved in the church in Jerusalem or in Judea there. And when he mentions Simon, he's like, and, and you know his sons, okay? Probably Simon had passed away by this point, we don't know. But Alexander and Rufus. So what does this tell us? It tells us that this happenstance, this farce of a trial, this corruption of religious leaders, um, not only was God orchestrating it sovereignly to accomplish his purpose to carry out salvation through the suffering king, but he was actually working on a micro level to introduce Simon to himself. So apparently, Simon, happenstance, is there, carries the cross, that Simon then, after this, and after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, becomes a follower of Jesus. And he has two sons, Alexander and Rufus. They become followers of Jesus. His household becomes followers of Jesus. And it just shows us, and, and John Piper says this a lot, he said, God is never doing just one thing in a circumstance. He's doing a billion things all at the same time simultaneously. And that's, I think, clearly what we see in this passage. God is working on multiple levels. Um, I mean, we have a hard time keeping our calendars straight for the day, right? But God is ordering every um, microorganism, every circumstance, every sin, every righteous deed to bring about good for his people and his sovereign will. And Alexander and Rufus, Simon, are perfect examples and a testimony to that. And so, church, wherever you are today, whatever um, deeds, perspectives, circumstances you're being faced, confronted with, that seem to be working contrary to the purposes of God, seem to be... Um, um, out of sort of control, remember God is divinely standing behind all of it, okay, to bring about his good and perfect will. And he does it for his son. He does it for Simon and his sons. He does it for you and me because that's a promise from scripture that God works all things after the accordance of his will, that God um, works all things for the good for those who are called, okay, by him. And so be encouraged by that today. Um, great stuff, isn't it? Matthew 27. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let us rest in your sovereign um, hand this morning. 
knowing that you, there is nothing that happens or stands apart outside of your holy will and that you have promised us just as you did with Simon, just as you did with Jesus and that his death for us to work all things after the purpose of your will. And we thank you for that. Let us rest in that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us, Four Oaks. Stay tuned. Be back here, same time, same station tomorrow for Matthew 28, our final devotional for this season before we crank back up again um, at the end of the summer as we head into the fall. But anyway, Matthew 28, same time, same station tomorrow. I'll see you guys then.